everybody, and welcome to this week's Infection Control Matters. I'm Martin Kiernan, and this week we're going to be doing something a little bit different. So, Brett, do you want to explain what we're doing? Because we're going a little bit off-piste. We are going a little bit uh, off, off, the, off the track today, Martin, and hello, everybody. So today we're going to have a, a Q&A-style discussion with uh, some panellists, and the topic would be none other than COVID-19. And really the idea of today is to talk very generally about COVID-19, to talk about challenges and um, potential solutions to, to challenges that people are having in healthcare facilities. Um, and, and really just to, to see if there's a way in which we can share ideas and experiences from those who have been working and had um, worked into in, in COVID for, for some time, particularly through 2020 and into 2021. So just as a by way of background for today, we, we posed a, uh, the opportunity for listeners to post questions to the panel and we've collated those questions over the last few days. And so they're the questions that we're going to use to talk about uh, today. And I just um, preface this, of course, we've got listeners from all over the world. So it's really important that wherever you're listening, that you'll have your own guidelines to follow, whether they be hospital-based whether they be state or national-based guidelines. And so to this discussion today doesn't preclude or negate any of those policy discussions or, or policy guidelines that are out there. This is really just an opportunity to hear from a group of people who have experienced um, COVID-19 in their workplace. And those on the panel are not in a position to influence policy either, so we shouldn't be expecting that to, to happen by way of these questions. So without further ado, um, let me introduce our panellists for today. We have three, um, all from Melbourne in Victoria, who, by way of context, went through some massive outbreak of COVID, particularly during 2020, but we'll hear about that in a moment. So we have Professor Kirsty Busing, who's an infectious diseases physician at the Royal Melbourne. Good morning, Kirsty. Hi, Brett, and hi, Martin. Nice to see you. Great to see you again, Kirsty. We have Liz Orr. Liz is the uh, Manager for Infection Prevention and Surveillance Service at Royal Melbourne and Northwestern uh, Mental Health. And she's previously worked at Austin and Vicness as well. well. Welcome, Liz. Thank you very much. Good morning. And our third panellist today is uh, Associate Professor Carolyn Marshall, who's an infectious diseases physician working with the Victorian Infectious Diseases Service. And she's Head of Infection Prevention and surveillance service at the Royal Melbourne Hospital as well. And good morning to you too, Caroline. Good morning and thanks for inviting me on the panel today. Well, thank you all very much for your time in being with us today. We uh, certainly appreciate that. So, Kirsty, I might just throw the first question to you. Um, actually, before I do that, perhaps it might be useful just for people to hear about what you experienced in, in your facility by way of COVID. So just by way of by way of context, uh, Kirsty, do you want to start and just give us a little bit of quick overview of what 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 have you also your experience with COVID? Yeah, thanks, Brett. Um, so I work at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, and I think in 2020 we had the unfortunate experience of having um, the la the largest experience with COVID in Australia. Now. I'm very mindful that it's not large from a global context, but um, for us, um, we were on a really steep learning curve. It, many will know that in Melbourne, it really manifests as two waves in 2020. There was a first one in March, April, that was mostly returned travellers, generally fairly young people. And we managed that, um, we felt, you know, quite confident about the way we were managing that one. Um, and I think we had something in the order of 25 to 30 admissions of patients at the time. And then there was the lull um, and then July, August hit and we had a very large number of patients admitted to hospital. Um, and um, many will know we, we were impacted by a large number of healthcare worker infections. Um, I think we got to a peak of 99 concurrent patients and it spread over six wards in the hospital that had to flip to being what we called hot. Um, and uh, at peak, I think we had 270 healthcare worker infections in total. Um, so a very steep learning curve for us and really just having to um, digest new and emerging evidence as it was coming out and turn that into something that we could operationalise quickly and 
you know, we were working in a time before we knew very much about some of the therapies like dexamethasone and remdesivir and tocolizumab. We were working in a time where we didn't have vaccination of our healthcare workers. Um, and we were even working in a time where we were still learning things about the asymptomatic nature of COVID. We were, we were learning things about aerosol transmission. So um, we feel like we sort of, we, we came a very long way in a short time. Um, and as we're watching what's unfolding in other states, as, as well as our own, we still have not, we're still in lockdown here in Victoria too, but, um, but uh, as we're watching what's happening in other states, we've really wanted to, to reach out and just share experience. Um, and we're really grateful, Brett and Martin, through this podcast that, that we've got that opportunity just to, to talk to other people and, and see sort of how, how we nutted through problems and, and um, is there anything we can do to help, really? Thanks very much for that. Kirsty, um, Liz and Carolyn, just by way of, of background, is there anything else that you wanted to add that I guess um, thinking back to, to your experience of COVID, I think at the end we might ask each of you what what's the biggest challenge you faced or, or, or perhaps what's the biggest challenge you're going to face. But um, thinking back to, to your experience um, in 12, 12 months ago, is there anything else that you know, you'd like to add to, to Kirsty's comments by way of context to, to what you've been through? Liz, do you want to go first? Thanks. Um, we, I guess we weren't prepared for just that large, rapid scale up of, of cases. We have a, uh, we're lucky to have a 20-bed uh, infectious diseases ward that's all negative pressure. A couple of those rooms are shared three-bed rooms. So we have a capacity for 14 negative pressure rooms on that particular ward. But I guess... Um, you know, you don't know where COVID's going to pop up. So we ended up with the the largest contributor to our outbreak was at our um, subacute uh, aged care services. So that created, um, you know, a, a massive amount of staff infections and uh, patient infections out there at the other campus. Um, and, you know, we didn't have negative pressure out there um, at the time that wasn't really recommended. It was all considered droplet spread. So, we were wearing surgical masks at the time um, and we had to rapidly scale up to going to N95 masks um, in addition to the other PPE. So I think that was a, a very steep learning curve that we, as soon as we changed to N95s, we did start to see things uh, improve a little bit. But, um, you know, access to those to those uh, negative pressure rooms was extraordinarily challenging with the, the number of patients that we're actually seeing each day. And we also... Um, took some residents from nursing homes as direct admits into that campus as well. So we had a, um, a, a ward allocated for uh, nursing home patients. So they all came into that particular ward. So on our other subacute ward, when we started to see some cases, that ward that we had dedicated to look after our aged care population was already full of nursing home patients. So it meant that these patients really didn't have anywhere to go. Um, and a lot of these wards are very open plan um, with about two single rooms in the entire ward. So that one just swept through the entire ward. And I think almost every single patient that was on that ward and a good majority of the staff ended up with COVID. So um, access to single rooms was a really big issue out there. Um, and also, we also learned how our really, really old facilities uh, do not help in the ventilation world. Uh, that's an interesting point. I think we're going to touch on ventilation as one of our uh, our topic areas. And I think we're going to talk about some population groups and, and visitors as well. But Martin, in the interest of getting these questions cracking, do you want to um, start off with the first one? Quite a few questions came in on the Delta variant, which in the UK we know as the Johnson variant. And the questions are really, does it have a longer incubation period than previous strains of COVID? Uh, and if so, should we think about quarantining or isolating people longer than the 14 days? And also, it seems to be pretty contagious with only very fleeting and minimal interaction. Is this actually true? And what do you think the key factors for transmission at the moment are and why? And I think I'll point that one at Caroline, if that's okay. Okay, so... I haven't seen any evidence that it does have a longer incubation period. Um, occasionally there are cases where people postulate longer incubation period, although that certainly was happening last year. And, in fact, if you look at the studies last year, there were occasional, you know, if you looked at the graphs, there were people who seemed to have longer incubation periods. Certainly in Australia we've had some people come out of hotel quarantine with COVID and, and develop COVID after they left. 
And the question is, did they have a longer incubation period or did they actually catch it in hotel quarantine? And I think the latter um, has been shown to occur in um, some of these situations. So I'm not aware of it having a longer incubation period, but there is some talk of that. In terms of transmission, I think um, Delta is more transmissible. I think last year we were seeing, you know, household contacts probably about, you know, the reported rate of conversion for household contacts was about 10 to 40%. This year, I haven't actually seen the data, but um, it's anecdotally reported it as nearly 100%. So if you're in a house with someone else with COVID, you're very, very likely to get it. And I think we've all seen these fleeting transmissions at various places where people have literally walked past other people and caught it. So yes, and there is evidence that um, it's definitely more transmissible than some of the other variants. Certainly the experience we've had here in the UK anyway, uh, that it does seem to be much more transmissible. And like you, I'm not completely convinced by the longer incubation period, because if it is more transmissible, then very fleeting contacts and uh, and your experience of people acquiring it in hotels, uh, I think, bears that out uh, through probably ventilation. Uh, Brett, do you want to move on to the next question? This one's about visitors and and sort of isolation. Perhaps we'll move to a couple of questions about those that topic. And and um, Liz, you might um, perhaps want to start with this one. Uh, one of the questions that one of the listeners had was that they are now seeing a situation of having patients and visitors from high risk areas visiting the hospital for treatment and to see um, gravely ill relatives. Um, What do you suggest is the best way to to manage this? It it is quite challenging. Uh, Currently, we're in a lockdown at the moment and our Victorian Department of Health has a restriction on visitors during lockdowns. So in these cases, if someone's coming from a high-risk site or an exposure site um, or as a contact of a case, so we call them primary close contacts, um, and they're either here to see that gravely ill relative or they're coming in as a patient. Um, we get them to make sure they're wearing a surgical mask and we get staff to wear full PPE. So in Victoria, we call it tier three PPE. So it's gown, gloves, N95, mask and face shield. Um, so we do get these, uh, in, we do get those in hotel quarantine. So people who have come from overseas and doing their two weeks in hotel quarantine, if they're coming in um, to visit a dying relative, um, they only get to come in by exception and that's granted by the Department of Justice um, and has to be negotiated with the hospital. So when those uh, people come in, we get them to wear a face shield, gown and surgical mask as well. So they, they wear what we would call our Tier 2 PPE um, and uh, we get staff from that department, so, you know, palliative care ward, for example, or intensive care. Um, so they actually meet the um, the visitor up in the um, front, en- front entrance of the hospital or the screening clinic, wherever they are, um, and they take them, they get them to don the PPE at that point and they take them up to the department, one person in a lift um, or just the two of them in the lift rather, um, and then the, the nurse or the, the person picking the patient up would press, press the lift buttons, et cetera. Thanks, Liz. That's a really good example of, of how to manage this um, situation with some compassion. And just on that topic, we actually have got a podcast coming out next week um, specifically dealing with the concept of compassion and infection control and how can we um, support and facilitate this type of arrangement in, in hospitals but also uh, aged care facilities where people have been locked out from seeing visitors for really extended periods of time under the basis of infection control. And uh, we explore that topic in a lot more detail with Jill Storr. So if you're interested in that topic, um, Jill Storr works for WHO, um, and um, you can hear more about that next week. Thank, thanks very much, Liz. Uh, just, just on that sort of topic, I guess, of residential aged care facilities and, and, and visitors and trying to keep on cross of information. Carolyn, this one might be for you because I know you've done a lot of work in, with residential aged care facilities. Um, one, of the, one of our listeners said that, you know, one of the challenges with residential aged care is screening everyone who comes in and the ever-changing lists of um, casual and close contacts and, and uh, people wanting to push back against that advice. Is there, is there any sort of solutions or any advice that you've um, had or experienced in trying to manage that situation of this ever-changing amount of information that's coming through and, and communicating that? Um, it's a really difficult problem because we... Certainly at the hospital have um, everyone who walks in the door has to fill in an attestation 
um, and it says, have you been to any exposure sites? And then there's kind of a link that you're meant to click on and, um, you know, look through 350 exposure sites to check. Um, I think we're converting it to a map now so it's a bit visually easier for people to see what if they might have been somewhere. Um, but it's a really tricky problem because the reality is I think most of us don't look at the list every day or even ever. Um, so it is a very tricky problem. What we have found in general with um, attestations is that people don't necessarily um, fill out the attestation accurately. I mean, you know, I think most people try, but it is hard. There's obviously people who don't speak English, people who don't understand what we're asking. And we have had some patients who come through um, and um, on secondary questioning, it's been discovered that they might have had symptoms or they might have been somewhere of concern. So I think one thing that I would suggest, I, I'm actually not sure if the nursing homes, aged care facilities do have to fill out the attestation as well. I suspect they might. But I think actually questioning by a real person is a helpful thing just to help people understand what they're talking about. And I guess you know, there may be visitor restrictions um, during lockdown, so that's going to um, potentially make it a bit easier. But for people who are entitled to come in, I think maybe someone actually taking them through the list or showing them the map and explaining exactly what they mean might be a useful strategy. But I don't really have a good answer because it's very, very difficult. Thanks very much, Caroline. We're going to move on to um, PPE now, which has been a thorny issue all over the world, really. And COVID-19 aerosol generating procedures uh, and the the behaviours that generate aerosols have not really been captured as much as a risk in policies. Is that seen as a significant risk in Australia? Kirsty here, Martin, I can jump in. I, I, I would say absolutely yes. And we, we actually think they're probably more of a risk than aerosol generating procedures, which does pop up in all of these um, docu policies all the time. Um, you know, when we had We've been in the position where we could retrospectively now do the genomics and understand the transmission to many of our staff members. And, and it was episodes where patients were shouting, um, and those sort of, you know, very distressed patients where we, we saw sort of clusters of, of healthcare workers all getting infected on the one occasion. Um, um, you know, it's it's our view that this is probably uh, an underestimated um, risk and, and that, you know, not to diminish what's going on with intubations and other things, but but that we've we've been ignoring the things that patients do. We've only been talking about the things we do to patients, um, <laughs> and they're doing lots of things yeah, yeah. that are generating lots of aerosols. So um, there, there was a I know a colleague from another hospital spoke about, and and you know we spoke about it in um, once before about vomiting. You know, an episode where a patient a patient with COVID was vomiting in a ward, and mm -hmm. and a number of people around them became infected. So um, you know, there are, um, in addition to the traditional sort of nebulizers or non-invasive ventilation and those sort of things we think about, we believe we need to sort of lump in a lot of patient behaviours with that as well. And, and when we were triaging who to allocate to negative pressure rooms, that was a really important thing that we put into our risk assessment. You know, um, are they exhibiting any behaviours mm -hmm. that, that make us more worried? Um, because Clearly, we didn't have enough negative pressure rooms for everyone, so we, we had to pick who was the highest risk to go to those places. I mean, it, that throws up an interesting question then about who needs N95 fit testing because in the UK, if you were taking part in aerosol-generating procedures, you had to wear an N95 mask. And according to UK government guidelines, or the, the agency, which is Health and Safety Executive, everybody had to be fit tested for every single type of mask that they might uh, need to wear which of course when you're getting five different ones coming through procurement means you've got to be fit tested on the whole lot but actually we don't tend to think about fit testing people uh, for pa caring for patients with aerosol generating behaviors and that's a, a different and actually very logical way of looking at it I think isn't it Kirsty? Yeah, so, so we, in our context, we moved to using N95 masks for all suspected and confirmed COVID patients. Um, so it mm -hmm. wasn't just when you were doing an aerosol-generated procedure to a suspected or a confirmed. We, we were using them all the time. But, um, yeah, we, we absolutely do think differently about that. And, and you can think about the groups of patients who might be 
of more concern in that area. You know, I know Caroline and Liz did a lot of work with our mental health facilities and things where where people were distressed and were shouting. And, and um, you know, they're the groups that I think we're being more careful about now. The concept of aerosol generating behaviours really, I think, has stemmed from from the work in Melbourne. And so can, well done to, to sort of articulating and identifying this as a problem relatively early on to your team and, the, and others within, within Melbourne. And it found its way... Uh, into to guidelines in Victoria and then a um, bit, bit, bit later on into guidelines in Australia. Um, I don't know that this term is really caught on internationally. So just for the, um, the audience across the world, um, the term aerosol generating uh, uh, behaviours, so you mentioned shouting, Kirsty. What else might uh, uh, constitute um, sort of behaviours that you might be concerned about in terms of aerosol pr- uh, production? Well, well, I think um, vigorous coughing, so so where a patient is sitting in bed and coughing, you definitely don't stand in front of them and you're very cautious about that patient. Um, uh, shouting, vomiting, um, um, uh, I guess we, we know that singing, we did have patients who were singing actually. Um, we, we were able to count somebody who was singing in one of our retrospective reviews. Um, uh, Liz and Caroline can help me out here. What other things were we thinking about there? I, I was wondering if it's originated from Victoria. Is it because people have been watching the Melbourne versus Collingwood game and have noticed a certain <laughs> amount of aerosol generating behaviours during that game? Yeah, we, we certainly recognised, um, particularly at our subacute facility, which was affecting a lot of um, elderly people, you know, that there were demented, delirious patients who were, you know, not sitting in their beds. And I know that's not directly an aerosol-generating behaviour, but they were talking and shouting. And even on our infectious diseases ward, we did take quite a few patients from nursing homes and some of them, again, were, you know, non-cooperative and, as Kirsty said, singing, shouting, um, coughing a lot, um, not necessarily covering their cough. And, um, you know, sometimes the nurses even recognised, you know, I looked after this patient um, and they coughed all over me and then they got COVID. I, you know, it's hard to know exactly, but um, that, that those are the sort of things that we recognised. Royal Melbourne, along with many other uh, organisations across Australia, have done a great deal of work in, on whole genome sequencing to identify this. So just for the listeners out there who are saying, how do you know, um, c- could you just perhaps just give a very quick um, step through uh, you know, what you had had by way of uh, access to whole genome sequencing and, and uh, so you can sort of make these statements with a degree of confidence? I can jump in and the others can help out. But um, So we, we didn't have it in real time. I know um, it, it had to be done sort of retrospectively and it was difficult because some people may recall that a lot of the Melbourne outbreaks stemmed from one particular hotel quarantine breach. So the, the genomics, there was a lot of similarity in the second wave. The first wave... They were travellers and we had very varied genomics because they were coming from different countries. But in the second wave, there was a lot of similarity. It was it was stemming from one thing. But there was enough variation that the, the virus evolved enough that the different strains could be recognised. And in our facility, from memory, I believe we had 20 different strains that, that could be delineated. And then um, uh, there was detailed genomic, we call it genomic epidemiology. So they linked the genomics with all the epidemiologic information about where the patient was, the dates and the locations. And um, we are able to really identify likely pathways of transmission. So um, we could tell, for example, if, if a, uh, a particular strain that was in a particular aged care facility and those patients came into the hospital and then there was a transmission to our staff, for example. Um, that only happened a couple of times, but it did, it did happen. Um, but we clearly had other episodes where it might have been a staff member or a patient who had unrecognised, often asymptomatic COVID, and then it went on and transmitted to others. Um, so uh, we could see what we called incursions, where there was a, a patient with COVID and then then um, uh, it, it transmitted to one or two or more staff members um, that might have happened in the emergency department or in the COVID ward or something like that. So we've we've been able to really draw up a picture and, and try to better understand what were the risk factors for these incursions. Um, but Caroline and Liz can jump in if there's anything more you want to say there. So I think we were really lucky in Victoria because um, uh, we work very closely with the public health unit 
MDU, and they um, have essentially tried to sequence every isolate in Victoria. Now, not all are able to be sequenced for various reasons, um, but I think about 80% of ours from rural Melbourne were able to be sequenced. Some of them came from labs outside the hospital, so um, they weren't necessarily available. And it you know, it was very interesting to see those results. Um, it was really important, as Kirsty said, to combine the results with the epidemiological information, you know, good old Infection Control 101. Um, and we did have some surprises where we thought people were um, might have caught it um, on a ward, but in fact it looked like they didn't, and then other situations where we thought they might not have caught it and they did. Um, so it was really interesting to look at look at that and we did learn quite a lot from that but it was a huge amount of work from the um, sequencing point of view and a huge amount of work from the um, you know getting all the epi information and we still haven't even got all of that completely yet. Thanks very much Caroline um, and I guess just in the context of things like hotel quarantine too we've been able to use scenes like CCTV to identify exactly when there had been contact between individuals from an epidemiological point of view and then match that with whole genome sequencing so there's an amazing amount of work that's going on in Australia in this space and plenty more that will come out to help our understanding in future years. We probably need to move on to some other topics, but before I get off the PPE topic, uh, I think it should be a pretty straightforward question. Um, and um, the question is who needs N95 fit testing? Um, and uh, I think, Caroline, are you happy to, to answer that one? Uh, basically, we have said anyone who is going to wear an N95 mask needs fit testing, simple. Uh, the, the, yeah, and as Kirsty said, we recommend N95 masks for all contact with confirmed and suspected COVID patients from what we learned, particularly last year. But they're all getting fit tested and it's a massive undertaking. Thanks, Carolyn. We might move on to some other topics. And one of the topics is about resources. Uh, and, and Liz, I might um, pop, pose this question to you. Have you seen or been involved in any innovative tools or um, programs to help your work around uh, COVID-19 and infection control? Uh, not not really, to be honest. So not that I'm aware of. I think there could be some things out there, but I think prior to COVID, we would contact trace on paper. So, you know, a measles outbreak was done on paper and at best maybe Excel. And we're talking very small-scale contact traces. So when COVID hit, we weren't prepared to manage contact tracing in this in this large scale, and we had to scramble um, and get help from others in the hospital, you know, business intelligence, IT, to try and help create a um, workable program. So we ended up using REDCap um, to create a contact tracing database, um, and now we're moving towards a purpose-built software that we're about to implement next week. Um, so the Department of Health uses a different brand of software, though, so it's quite challenging because our systems don't talk to each other. So that's been really challenging managing our outbreaks and providing information that's in a consistent manner to the department. So for contact tracing, so that's been a bit difficult. Um, but in terms of, you know, we created our own donning and doffing videos. So we took um, did worked with Medical Illustration to do that in a really professional manner. Um, and the Department of Health ended up using our videos in the early days. Um, but we have to create our own procedures based off the Department of Health ones. And the difficulty is they just need constant constant updating. Um, and it takes a, a body of people to actually constantly update those. And we do we do share between hospitals, but you know, Victoria's run very differently to some of the other um, states. So, you know, each hospital does their own thing um, under the, you know auspices of the Department of Health. But we do we do share procedures amongst each other to try and help. Um, take a bit of the burden away from writing it from scratch. So, yeah, it would be, I haven't seen any, uh, actually come to think of it, um, the anaesthetist came up with an innovative PPE um, tool. They had this, um, like, a, like a video where you could watch yourself actually put PPE on and it showed you how you were doing it in, a, in, in donning and doffing. I, I can't really remember, but they, they did it as, does it show you um, when breaches occur when you get it wrong? You know, because because it's it's very easy to make a video to show you how you do it right, but actually, just making a, a video where you show actually this is where it it can go wrong can be quite useful as well, really, because it's it's a, often a small slip that makes a big impact, as as people sadly found with Ebola a few years ago. 
Yeah, not, not that I was aware of. This particular um, education tool that they were using, I only got to see it once, which is why I'm very vague, but that may have pulled them up if they were doing something incorrectly. It was a bit like an avatar and it would show you as an avatar how you were going putting it on. But um, the I think the Donning and Doffing N95 videos created by the various companies are pretty good um, and they should be incorporated into fit testing programs. So there's some good ones online they're readily available online so you know with the different brands that we have available there's usually a corresponding donning and doffing video um, put out by the company and i think that they're generally quite good so they've been quite useful as well we had another uh, resource question actually which is looking at why do some people continue to test positive even after 14 days in isolation can they still be contagious after the 14 days kirsty do you want to take that one is that something to do with the type of test that's being undertaken um, yeah, so so I think what what we're talking about here is positive PCR going on for a long time, and mm-hmm. um, and understanding that PCR just uh, reflects pieces of the virus, sort of, um, and we can't tell whether it's alive or dead from the from that PCR test. So um, I guess the way I talk about it is sort of dead bodies of the virus. <laughs> it's not a nice way to think about it, but they're probably going to persist for a long time there and just mm-hmm. the absolute amount goes down over time and the, the likelihood that you can culture it goes down over time. Um, each jurisdiction probably has slightly different rules about clearance. We call it clearance when we say somebody can leave their isolation. Um, and I know in, in our context the rules are slightly more cautious for Delta than than for um, other variants and um, the rules are more cautious for people who had more severe disease and for people who are immunocompromised. Um, so, you know, I have hospitalised, we've got a couple of hospitalised patients at the moment who we're trying to clear and, and we have to repeat the test and look at the amount of virus there. We call it a cycle threshold and and when um, they're, they're basically an expert panel sort of helps us in deciding when that, that really there's so little being detected on that PCR that it's extraordinarily unlikely that, that it's live virus and that they're not likely to be infectious. Um, but it, it seems it's getting, it got trickier with Delta. People were just adding more and more criteria um, around it. So, um, but, but that's the explanation that it's probably just, dead virus that's not culturable and it, it can persist for a long, long time. Thanks, Kirsty. Um, and I'm, I'm going to just go back just one quick step because um, like everyone's heard a thousand times on videos and Zoom before, I forgot to unmute and I was talking to myself. Um, but uh, Liz, um, uh, just a quick question for, for you and perhaps Caroline as well. Did you use, thinking about PPE, did you use um, a sort of PPE spotter type program or a buddy type program to help uh, improve or identify when people hadn't quite got their PPE right? Yeah, so we did have, um, the ED actually came up with the buddy system themselves. So they would check each other to make sure that they were donning appropriately and doffing appropriately. So they would just do it, you know, in, in pairs and same with the wards as well. Um, as, a, as a year went on last year, the Department of Health recognised that there should actually be a PPE spot on. It should be a dedicated role um, that the person does without being distracted and, you know, taking on a patient load. So that was introduced or maybe maybe sort of, you know, late towards the end of 2020. Um, so it, it's very, very challenging at the moment to get PPE spotters in the current workforce because we are very, very short-staffed. I think the nursing shortages are probably the worst certainly in my career, but um, I'm only young. But, you know, my director of nursing, um, is it's it, she said it's, you know, the worst in her career as well. So trying to find someone as a PPE spotter can be really challenging, but we do put a high priority on that because it is such an important um, person to have. And, and you, you may need several. That's another difficulty. You might need one at the donning area and you might need um, a separate person or two at the doffing areas. So it can create an, an extra level of burden when you need experienced staff to do this so we're looking at other options of um getting some you know students involved in this in this and some um we've used allied health in the past as well some physios and things they've been um really really great they've got high attention to detail so um yeah it has been really important that um having the ppe spotters yeah i certainly know i had an experience of working in a um, hospital built inside a convention center in london 
uh, with a lot of staff who weren't that familiar with PPE and having donors and doffers around who were helping people gave the staff a lot of confidence and uh, actually they felt very comfortable and very protected by having people who knew what they were doing around watching them because you've got to have the, the staff uh, around to do that. Uh, just want to pop on to immunity now because people are often discussing how long does the immunity of COVID-19 last, either if you've had infection or if you've had uh, vaccination. And people say, well, it only lasts a year. Well, uh, and struggle a bit on that one, really, because it's, <laughs> it's actually only been around a couple of years. So it's difficult to say it's going to last 10 years. But what, what's our current state of knowledge about how long immunity actually lasts, either from vaccine or from actual infection? I know last year we sort of were talking about 90 days and I'm, I'm aware that I think we're talking about case reports now about subsequent infections and I, I'm aware in our Victorian guidelines I think it's come down to uh, six weeks that they're saying you can assume somebody's immune and, and if they're re-exposed that they don't um, that they're not likely to reacquire it um, even in that you know six weeks or three months it's extraordinarily unlikely that they would reacquire it um, but that's my understanding of where we're at, but as you've just said, Mum, we're still learning, aren't we? And and you know, we, you know, we we just don't know as the, absolutely as, as variants change and things. We're gonna we're gonna learn new things. Um, so, I mean, there's no other respiratory virus where we get lifetime immunity from it. You know, it's not like some of the other viral infections where exposure means lifetime immunity. Things like norovirus, we're talking, you know, just a couple of months. So I don't know why we should expect it to be a lot longer, really. I mean, I mean, man flu, you seem to be able to pick up every other week. So I don't see why we should actually expect immunity to be hugely longer lasting. But maybe it's slightly less chance of getting the worst symptoms rather than actually not picking up the virus at all would be quite acceptable so our next question we might change topic again a little bit and move on to to cleaning lots of always lots of questions about cleaning and there was a, a question about i guess a disinfectant um and whether it kills can kill COVID 19 virus from surfaces um carolyn what's your view on on uh, the need for detergents disinfectants for for cleaning so I think um, the first thing to say is that COVID is an enveloped virus and they're actually quite easy to kill. So I think that's really important. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have conflated COVID with other organisms that are more difficult to kill or because we're also worried about it, we think it's difficult to kill. But actually it's pretty easy to kill and probably detergents kill. Um, in fact, they do kill COVID. Um, obviously in the hospital setting, um, we clean with detergents and disinfectants, or we certainly do at our hospital, um, and th that hasn't changed. But pretty well um, all hospital-approved um, disinfectants kill COVID. Now, what you need to look for is a claim against COVID or against respiratory viruses. Um, but as far as I'm aware, most of the things that we use do kill COVID. You don't need to use anything special if you're using a um, you know, quaternary ammonium compound, you can continue to use that. You don't have to go to chlorine or bleach or anything like that. Um, so we're just using our normal product, um, which is a detergent disinfectant wipe, and it's a quaternary ammonium compound. Um, so I think, um, you know, I think the issue of uh, contamination of the environment and contact transmission. It's, I think it's thought to be not as important as perhaps it was initially. The difficulty is with trying to determine how things are transmitted is that you can't isolate one mechanism of transmission. So there's always a few mechanisms of transmission. So it's very difficult to say something is specifically contact transmission when it's also airborne and droplet spread. Um, but I think the, you know, the um, transmission from the environment, I think probably was overplayed a bit. And I think um, that transmission by the airborne route really is thought to be the main mechanism of transmission. So I think uh, just your normal cleaning should be adequate for COVID. Um, you know, we do do so-called deep clean after we've had patients and various things, but um, I'm not sure whether perhaps that's a bit of overkill. Um, 
I do. I do like the old. Well, actually, I don't. I really detest the, the term "deep clean" so because I. Uh, people ask me what it means all the time. I'm like, it's, just, it's, it's a UK made-up term from the 1980s when they had a problem with MRSA. And I, I'm oh, still harsh, not quite harsh. sure what a deep clean is. To me, that's a proper clean, and that should be done for everyone. So, no. yeah. from from the UK, we have no idea what a deep clean is either. In fact, if you ask people what a terminal clean is, they don't know what that is. Yeah. And yeah, the terminology is absolutely all over the place. But I couldn't agree more about about you know this is not a difficult thing to kill anyway uh, and possibly the services were overplayed although what i would say is that because everybody's wearing masks now in general life in many parts of the world if surfaces are an issue then you've actually interrupted the route of transmission which is you touching your own nose and mouth because the mask is a physical barrier so you know I, i'm slightly on the fence about that one what I, what I have seen though is that other organisms that are really associated with uh, fomite spread things like norovirus have almost completely disappeared which is really bad news because we've not seen any norovirus really to speak of in the uk for two years which means nobody's immune which means come this winter we're all going to lose a lot of weight which in my <laughs> case is going to be very useful well while we're talking about um the environment actually there was a, a question about about shared spaces and so if you're doing perhaps a, an aerosol generating procedure um, or you know someone who has been COVID positive in a space maybe transferring them in a lift or something like that um, Liz what, what what's your sort of view and, and or practice has been about um, how long you leave those areas for before the next person comes along to, to reduce the risk of transmission via via aerosols and, and, and airborne transmission yeah thank you I think um, in terms of the rooms uh, you've got to look at your air uh, changes per hour and um, a lot of hospitals should know their uh, air exchanges. So, you you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, up to an hour is um, most standard rooms would need. Negative pressure, definitely significantly less. In terms of corridors and shared spaces, that, that's one that people do seem to get a bit fancy about. So where the designated hospital in Melbourne for receiving viral hemorrhagic fever. So we've been preparing for this for quite a long time in terms of transferring VHF patients from ED to our ICU. Um, so we actually have a, a term called a clinical code yellow. So you've got your code yellow, code black, th those kinds of things. And code yellow is internal emergency. We've created a clinical code yellow. So it's a clinical internal emergency. Um, and that highlights um, to all the executives and relevant people that we might have a patient of, of significance in the hospital. So initially we tried to start all of that with COVID and realised quite quickly that was we got soon got overwhelmed. But we've, um, what we do have is a, a paging system that we page switchboard um, and it's a, it, it gets security um, to attend. So I think there's about four security that would uh, at, attend a, a patient transfer. So we've actually reintroduced this at the moment. Um, so they create a pathway from, you know, the resus cubicle, the negative pressure cubicle in ED through the department to the closest lift. So they um, provide an unhindered access. Um, so no unnecessary staff and patients and visitors are in the pathway. So they kind of secure like a bit of a pathway from the patient's room to the lift um, and the lifts are right, right near ED. So another security member meets them and locks the lift at the other end. Um, so the same process occurs. So once they go into the lift, the lift is locked um, it lands at the ICU floor. They then take the patient straight out and they go straight into the ICU cubicle. So you've got your security at the other end as well. Um, and then we clean the lift. Uh, and we actually do use air cleaners uh, and we suggest it's 10 to 15 minutes in, in the lift. So we allow the air cleaner to go in for 10 to 15 minutes and then the cleaner will go in and, and clean the lift as well. Um, and like I said, we tried it in the beginning of COVID. It became overwhelming. But I think we've we've since reintroduced this in the last month or so, um, just to try and see if we can manage the the corridors a little bit better. So um, we did discuss the need to have air cleaners in the corridors, but we felt they may be a bit of a trip hazard or um, might be an issue um, in the sheer number that we would need to manage it. Um, we'd need quite a few of them. So if staff are wearing full PPE, which we get them to do, and the patient can tolerate a surgical mask, then the risk is minimised. Um, and for COVID-positive patients going to theatre uh, from ICU, for example, we actually intubate them in um, ICU, a pop on their viral filter, so then um, that reduces the risk 
in the journey down to theatre as well. So they're going to be tubed anyway for theatre, so it's not an unnecessary procedure. So the anaesthetist would, would intubate them and then go escort the patient down to theatre. Uh, and then those already intubated in ICU, of course, would be managed the same way. Um, and then vice versa happens. They go intubated back up to the wall to ICU um, and they get extubated in the negative pressure room there post-theatre. So we've put a little bit of thought about how we would manage people in the corridors. Yeah, thanks. Liz. That's a great practical solution. And um, I think that we've still got a long way to go and learn about um, a whole range of things when it comes to this. Uh, for those interested in um, that sort of concept of air purification, we did do a podcast with Kirsty uh, a couple of weeks ago. So it might be worth having a listen to that. And I think we'll need to certainly dedicate perhaps a whole podcast at some point, uh, looking at some of these issues, <laughs> like many things on the show, we always think, oh, that's another one we need to do. Um, so the conscious of time and um, and everyone's time on this podcast, perhaps someone's going to go around um, uh, each of you and just um, maybe if I could just ask you very briefly, one thing that you've learnt, the most important thing you've learnt um, out of this your experience to date, or one thing you'd really like to know um, moving forward that would really help your practice and around COVID. Carolyn, I'm going to put you on the spot and and, and go to you first. Um, any thoughts on one thing that you've learnt or one thing you'd really like to know? Can I do or three? Or both, really? whatever, you go for it. You, you <laughs> can do what you like. <laughs> okay, so the first thing I think is this um, concept of how organisms, particularly respiratory viruses, are spread. You know, this we've always thought of the dichotomy between droplet and airborne spread, and I think that's kind of been turned on its head. And, you know, the, the, the way we think about it is a continuum now. I'm not going to give a lecture on that, but I think that's really um, changed, and I think the guidelines are going to have to catch up with what we know now and I think what the aerosol scientists have always known, but perhaps we weren't listening to them. So that's number one. Number two is I think there have been some silver linings for infection prevention from COVID and certainly um, our we feel like we are actually now appreciated now and people have a bit of an understanding of what we do and they, um, yeah, they appreciate our expertise and they come and consult us and we've been very lucky that we've actually had extra resources provided to us because of COVID. So that's um, number two. And number three is I think you can't underestimate the effect that COVID has had on the staff um, and staff wellbeing and anxiety and stress has been a real issue for us. And um, we did pay a lot of attention to that last year, particularly when we had lots of people furloughed, but we're still seeing um, the effects of that now with our staff not wanting to work on COVID wards. And um, I think you can't ignore that. It's really important to address because a lot of people have um, got a lot of issues now. You know, I don't like to call it PTSD, but um, it's really affected them badly and it's still affecting them. So that's my advice. Pay attention to wellbeing. Okay, Kirsty, your turn. You can have one, two or three as Caroline set a precedent. I actually very much echo what Caroline said. I think I think I've had a complete revolution in the way I think about aerosol transmission, and uh, I think um, uh, appreciating how important that is, and and thinking through what we can do around that. And um, and given our experience with staff infections, I would very much support Caroline's comments on on um, staff wellbeing being an ongoing issue. It doesn't end when when the outbreak ends, and it impacts workforce going forward and things like that that we're still struggling with. And the thing that I would like to know is how could we better design a hospital? You know, we, we are looking at a new hospital mm. being built for us at the Royal Melbourne and, you know, there's still debate about single rooms and, and you know, we're, we're only starting to get our head around ventilation. And um, so how could we do this better um, would, would be my big question going forward. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Kirsty. And uh, Liz? What about yourself? I echo um, Kirsty and Caroline's comments 100%. I think um, just don't underestimate the amount of work it can take. Uh, as soon as you have a case on the ward and you start doing a contact trace, it's extraordinarily massive and it takes <laughs> a work not just from, you know, the infection prevention team can't do it all. When the start, I think people just thought, oh, that's an infection prevention thing and they learned pretty quickly that actually it's not. It's, it's a whole hospital approach to this. So that was a um, one thing that our hospital did really well, um, respond 
as a, as a whole. And I think that was really, really important. So having executive on board is crucial. Um, they need to understand the impacts it's having on the hospital um, and the staff. And, uh, you know, we have expertise in infection prevention, um, but I guess you just, you just get challenged by it every day. There's so much we're learning day in, day out. We started off, is it droplet? Is it airborne? Is it not? Is it, oh, yes, N95? No, yes, no. So that constant change is extraordinarily difficult to manage ourselves, plus also the staff. We're giving them constantly different messaging. So I think it's um, the workforce needs to be agile and to adapt to change uh, rapidly because that's what constantly happens. It's change, change, change. Oh, thank, thanks so much, Liz. And Martin, look, I'll let you answer that question too. What, what, what's, what's one thing? I'm going to limit it to one to you because we're out of time. Okay. <laughs> so in the words of Aristotle, the more I learn, the less I know. And that's what this has taught me, really. And, yeah, I, we, we really need to talk to other disciplines, but I'm approaching the twilight years of my career. I've been working in infection prevention for 31 years, and I'm seriously in danger of being at the end of my career knowing that I know less than I thought I knew when I started it 31 years ago. So... You know, so the thing to me is learn, but keep your mind open to everything and do not think you know the lot and you learned it once years ago and that's what all you need to know. So that's what I've learned. It's just open your mind to other disciplines, much more multidisciplinary working, learn from experts in other fields because certainly I don't feel like an expert anymore. Thank you very much um, to to all of you for your contributions today. It's been um it's been wonderful to hear about your experience. And I think we've really covered a huge breadth of issues. Apologies to all the questions we couldn't get to. We were, were we were overwhelmed with questions, but I hope we could cover some big themes that people had um, and provide some practical sort of uh, experiences from our panelists. So um, Kirsty, Caroline, Liz, on behalf of uh, our listeners and, and Martin and myself, thank you very much for your time and sharing your experience today. Thanks very much. Thank you. And to our listeners, thanks very much for listening. And um, from Martin and I, until next time, it's bye from us. Bye.